Jim. Thank you, Audra, for uh, serving us so well this morning. Well, some of you who have been around Woodhaven for a long time uh, were sure to make note that Dave and Heidi Coombs are here this morning. Um, and if you did not see them, be sure to say hi after the service. Um, it's a delight to have them with us. I, I'm not seeing them right now. Where are they? They're back there. Oh, hiding. I see. All right. Good. Um, I uh, have gotten to know Dave and Heidi just a little bit, uh, not like so many of you know them. Um, we uh, had a Skype call and, and talked to them for a, a good long while and just thoroughly enjoyed talking to them. And, um, you know, from what so many of you have said and then just from my brief interaction with them, um, these two are certainly uh, choice servants of the Lord. They are humble. They pursue their ministry with everything they have and have been faithful for a long time. And these are the type of people who are going to have many, many crowns of reward in heaven and who are definitely going to hear, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, they serve under the radar, they do their thing, they use their gifting, and uh, it's just a delight to have them with us this morning. And they'll be sharing with us a little bit next week, just giving us an update, so make sure you're back uh, to hear from them and say hi to them next week as well. Um, speaking of next week, we are going to be wrapping up our series on our mission statement today. Uh, it's been four, this is the fourth week of that, and next week we will be jumping back into the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we are heading right into an exciting section, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem for the last week of his life. So I'm very much looking forward to getting back to Mark and studying through that. Uh, and I think it'll be uh, encouraging and a blessing to you. Uh, so looking forward to that next week. Americans, we Americans have always been um, obsessed, might be the right word, obsessed with freedom. That's our thing, freedom. Um, it's been in our DNA since our beginning, and, you know, rightfully so. Freedom is a wonderful thing, um, and I don't want you to hear me saying otherwise this morning. But as believers, as citizens of God's kingdom, more than citizens of our earthly home, America, we have to make sure that we are thinking correctly about this idea of liberty or about this idea of freedom. Sometimes we adopt what the culture tells us true freedom is rather than thinking carefully and biblically about what true freedom really is. In 2003, um, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote uh, a statement um, on a case, and he wrote this definition of freedom. Maybe you've heard this before, but it's sort of uh, resounded throughout the culture since 2003, but here's what he wrote in his opinion. At the heart, I think it's on the screen actually, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I don't think Justice Kennedy wrote those words in a vacuum. I don't think he's the one that came up with this concept of freedom. I think he was actually just eloquently putting what so many people really believe. This understanding of freedom has been pervasive in our culture for quite some time. And I think he just put words to what many, many people already felt and already believed is true freedom. Now, it's sort of a 
cyclical effect. He wrote these words in a culture that already believed this, but putting the words like this at such a prominent, in such a prominent way, I think further encouraged people along these lines and to have this concept of freedom. People were able to hold on to this, and I think you can see the impact of these words and this philosophy of freedom sort of reverberating throughout our culture today. And when you hear this, maybe some of you recoil at this concept of this definition of freedom, but if I were to ask you to define freedom or liberty, most of us would probably reply something like this. Freedom is the, the liberty or not having restraint of any kind or any interference from the government. It's basically having the most options from which to choose in front of you. The person is most free who has the most ability to choose. That's what most of us would probably say freedom is. I don't want the government messing with me here. I want the ability to choose here. I want job options in front of me, car options in front of me, all these options in front of me. That defines freedom for most people living in the United States. And maybe even as I'm saying that, some of you are going, Okay, what's the other option? <laughs> what, what else would freedom be if that's not it? And I think we think that because we have been so influenced by the culture around us. We think the more options, the more free. Biblically speaking, that's not true freedom at all. True freedom is not the absence of restraint with self in the driver's seat. That's not true freedom, a person like that is actually beholden and enslaved to their desires rather than truly free. Biblically speaking, I think this quote I'm about to give you is a helpful definition of freedom. The model of a free human being then is not the person who has so much money, time, and imagination that he can do whatever comes into his head, but someone who will choose the good. That's true freedom who knows just how to make a friend happy or who offered the chance to become wealthy through committing fraud can turn it down without a second thought. True liberty or freedom is the ability to be who God intended you to be. It's to live as you were designed and to choose that which is good. And what does that look like? How has God designed us? Well, that brings us to the last piece of our mission statement today in our study over these last four weeks. True freedom means the ability to live as God designed, which means living for the good of other people. It means living in such a way that I am given to serving other people, living for the good of others. It means that I am focused outward on God and on others rather than turned inward on self and choosing from any options in front of me and living by my own desires. True freedom is giving my life away for the good of others. We were not created to determine our own existence or to live for self. We were created to find fulfillment and to find satisfaction as we give our lives away in service for others. And so when you think about it that way, when that's true freedom, living according to the way God has designed you and he has designed you to live for the good of others, when you think about it that way, really what our mission statement is doing and those words on the back of the wall, worship, connect, serve, all our mission statement is doing is saying, live as God designed you. 
You were made to worship God. You were made to live in community with others. And you and I were made to serve other people, to give our lives away for others. So really, our mission statement is just saying, be who God made you to be before the fall into sin and how he designed you to find satisfaction and fulfillment. And so because of that, I want to give you three reasons that service must be a vital part of our lives of discipleship. So as we think about our mission statement, becoming followers of Christ, making disciples of Christ, and then these three words that work that out, the last one is to serve the church and the world. I want to give you three reasons that service has to be a vital part of our lives as disciples, disciples of Jesus. The first reason is what we've already talked about a little bit, but I want to flesh it out more. We are designed, you are made to serve others. If true freedom means the ability to live according to how you were made, then you and I have to understand what we were made for. Now, I'm not experiencing true freedom when I jump out of a plane without the restraint of a parachute. I mean, you don't have anything restraining you, but you're certainly not experiencing true freedom because that's not going to end well for you. I am experiencing true freedom when I recognize how I am designed as a human being and that I don't have wings and that I go and I learn how to fly a plane and I get in the cockpit and I actually fly the plane and I'm able to enjoy flight and I'm living in line with how I'm designed and how God made me, then I'm experiencing true freedom. Then I can fly wherever is in front of me, whatever, wherever I want to, in line with that the way God God made me. And that's the same thing with us as human beings. We are not made to live for self. We're made to live for others. Last week, if you were here, we talked a little bit about the Trinity, that most difficult to understand doctrine that we often think is sort of to be put over here and we're embarrassed by it and it's hard to explain and all of that. But the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity actually has massive impact on the way we live our lives daily. And this is one of those areas. I talked about how God in his triunity is a loving community. The Father loves the Son through the Spirit. I don't know if you remember that, but that's important. And I want to press that a little bit further today. When you think about God as a loving community, the reality is is that God in his very being is outward looking. He looks away from self to love others. The Father looks to the Son through the Spirit in love, and the Son returns that gaze and that affection and that glory back to the Father. God is a sending, loving God. When the Bible says God is love, that's exactly what it means. God is outward looking. And that love is what led God to create the world. He created the world so that we could experience who he is and know him and be in relationship with him. And he sends the son into this broken world in order to bring us back into fellowship with him to know him. He's a loving, sending God at his heart. And you can see this very clearly in John chapter 17. If you were to go read that later on this afternoon, it's a prayer from Jesus the Son right before he goes to the cross to God the Father. And this prayer is filled with this language of love and sending and glory. And you even see in verse 18, 
The Son says to the Father, as you sent me into the world. This is the heart of who God is. He's a mission-oriented sending God, so I have sent them into the world. This is why we're on mission, because we reflect this about the Father and the Son. And the purpose of that sending was to bring us into unity with the Father and the Son. Verses 20 to 24. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now, there's a lot happening there, but basically the son is saying, Father, you loved me, you sent me in order to bring them into relationship with us. God loves, he sends, and he brings others into that love. So it's important to remember that you and I are made in God's image. We are made to reflect this love and relationship. We're not to be navel gazers, looking at self all the time, but we are designed to love and to serve others. I mean, this is everywhere in the New Testament. This idea of denying self, of giving up self, and of looking outward to others. Just a couple of examples. You know this this from Mark chapter 8. Jesus says true life is not found in getting what you want, it's found in giving your life away. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The path to true life is serving others and is looking outward to God and others. John chapter 13 Right after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet and has served them in a dramatic way, here's what he says. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things Blessed are you if you do them. Now, I want to key in on that last phrase there, where Jesus says, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed there does not mean approved by God. Sometimes we think of that, and there is a word that does mean approved by God that's translated blessed, but that's not the word here. The word here is the same word that's used in the Beatitudes. And this word means that you will be living the good life as God designed you, and you will find satisfaction and joy and well-being. You may not have a lot of money. You may not have physical health. But you will be living the good life as God designed you if you will follow my example and give your life away to serve others. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage after he's given this amazing example. Another author said this, we are to seek and pursue what is good for our lives, which means, first of all, God, 
and second of all, the good of our neighbors with whom we share our lives. Sounds a lot like loving God and loving others. In our house, we are unashamed nature show lovers. We enjoy them very much. And what's so fun about a nature show is I love to watch because I like to see the animals in their natural habitat because they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It's really fun to watch the sequence when the fox is trying to get the baby goose and the mother goose is defending the baby goose and they're fighting and they're going back and forth. God made both of them to do that. They're doing exactly what they were designed to do and it's enjoyable to watch that. They're living as God intended them to live. And it's fun. You and I were not made to constantly think about self. We're not made to constantly worry about self and to try to better ourselves through thinking about self. That's not how we were designed. We were designed to live with our attention fixed outward to God and to other people And we are to live the good life by serving others. So the first reason that we have to see serving others as a vital part of discipleship is because we're designed that way. The second reason is that we are saved to serve others. Human beings are designed to look outward, and we're also saved and placed in the family of God in order to serve others. So God designed us to live for others, and then you know what happened, the fall Adam and Eve's sin broke all of that, and it twists us in on ourselves. We become navel gazers. We become people who are fixated on self and wrapped up in self. And living with self in the center causes great difficulty. But God, as we talked about earlier, very graciously sends his son in order to save us from ourselves. And he sends his son to reposition our hearts looking outward toward God and others. That's the goal of Christ's work. That's what he wants to accomplish. He wants us to live with love toward others. In Galatians 5, you can see here that Paul is stressing to them they're not obligated to keep the details of the Old Testament law anymore, but instead... They're to live with faith, working through love, working to look outward toward God and others. It's because of the work of Christ that they're not obligated to keep the details of the Old Testament law, but the freedom that they have from the Old Testament law, from those details, is not to be used in a self-serving way. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law, everything. You don't have to keep the details of the Old Testament law, the sacrifices and all of that, but the point of the whole Old Testament law was for us to love God and love others. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the goal. Christ saves us in order to serve others. We're freed in order to be who God made us to be. The sanctification process is the process of us being put back together as true human beings so that we can live as we're designed. We're saved to serve. Probably can't state this any more clearly than Jesus does here. Matthew 22. 
And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Another author described this salvation to serve others like this. We are passive receivers of the gift of salvation, but we are thereby rendered active worshipers in a life of thanksgiving that is exhibited chiefly in loving service to our neighbors. So, Christ has saved us to serve others. I think I've made that point clear, but... Obviously, we don't do that perfectly. And I want to talk for a second about a couple of hindrances to this idea of serving others. What keeps us often sidelined from giving our lives away in service to others? Well, of course, selfishness, thinking about me, but how does this selfishness express itself? A couple of ways. First, self-condemnation. This can keep you and I from serving others, from looking outward to do good to others. So sin is serious. When we see that, we know that sin creates a a schism, a divide between God and man, and there's no more precarious place to be than on the opposite side of that divide, to be under the wrath of God. And so it's very natural when you are on the opposite side of that divide, it's very natural, even for people who don't acknowledge God, it's natural to feel a sense of guilt and shame and condemnation over your sin. You may not even think it's sin, but everybody has a moral compass. Everybody thinks that there's something wrong and something right that can be done in this universe. We have the law written on our hearts. Everyone acknowledges that there's some sense of right and wrong, and we feel guilt over things that we do that are wrong. That is natural, even to those who don't acknowledge the work of Christ. So then what happens is, sometimes a person will get saved, acknowledge the work of Christ, understand the gospel, and believe in him, but sometimes that sense of condemnation and guilt and shame can sort of be brought over into our Christian lives. We've experienced it before, and we we can't really get rid of it. Or maybe we sin as believers. We have a continual struggle, and so this sense of shame and guilt and condemnation continues to plague us as believers. Maybe your life before Christ was filled with sin, and you're ashamed of that. Maybe your life since Christ has had patterns of sin. And so you feel the condemnation and the weight of that sin because you take sin seriously. The gospel of Jesus Christ speaks boldly and clearly to self-condemnation, to guilt, to shame, and to sin. Listen to Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The schism is gone. The division is gone. We have peace with 
God. This is reality. This is the word of the Lord. This is true if you have been justified, declared righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. We have been accepted fully into his family because of Christ, and we no longer have to carry guilt and shame and condemnation around. He's taken care of it. He has wiped it clean. You are not responsible for your sin before God anymore. He carried it for you. A few chapters later in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in him. You have been united with him. And so God does not condemn his son How do you and I have the right to condemn us, ourselves, when he approves and loves and delights in his son and we have been united with his son? Why are we living in self-condemnation? The promise of the gospel is that you are free from that and do not have to live under that condemnation anymore. And so what the gospel does is it frees us to look our sin directly in the face. And to see how horrible it is, how horrible it was, the heinousness of our sin. We are able to look at it full tilt, square in the face, and say, Jesus Christ took care of that. And he covered it with his blood, and there is no condemnation because I have been justified and I have peace with God. And I'm able to say, yes, I am a sinner, I acknowledge it, but I repent of that sin and I place it under the work of Jesus Christ. And in full faith, I know that he has separated that sin from me as far as the east is from the west. Self-condemnation, this sense of guilt and shame impacts our serving of others. Because this sense of guilt and shame keeps us focused on self. And I'm worried about my relationship with the Lord. And I'm worried about my guilt. And I'm worried about my sin. And I feel shame over it. And so I try to atone for it. I try to do something to get rid of that sense of guilt and that sense of shame and insecurity. And then I don't have the energy or the desire to serve others because I'm thinking about me. And I don't say all this, for those of you that struggle with this, to heap condemnation on you this morning. I say all this, and I'm one who struggles with it as well, to say, preach the gospel to yourself. Go back to Romans 5 and Romans 8 and appropriate the promises of God that you have peace with God. God is not up in heaven looking at you going, come on. That's not how he operates. There's no condemnation. He's not frustrated with you. He delights in you as a son and as a daughter. Put your attention on him. And then, as a person who is free from guilt, turn your gaze outward and live in loving service to others. That's what the gospel promises to us. It is good news. So you've got self-condemnation that keeps us from serving others, and then you've got self-justification. This is sort of the opposite error, and this hinders our service as well, because rather than serving out of a heart that is free from our sin, from condemnation, and it's free in our standing of justification before God, what we try to do is we try to earn our justification before God by doing nice things for other people. 
We think that our service in the church, our service in our home, our service in the community somehow earns us favor with God. And so it becomes exhausting to try to serve. And it becomes a burden to give ourselves to service because we're trying to earn God's favor. We think we have to serve so that God will be happy with us. And as I've just explained, that couldn't be further from the truth. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're in Christ, your good works do not capture God's attention and catch his eye. He's not finally happy with you because you serve. The gospel makes us extrospective, turning our gaze upward to God in faith and outward to our neighbor in love. This is true freedom, freedom from sin's guilt and tyranny, freedom from condemnation and the obligation to serve to try to please God so that we can actually love people as gifts instead of debts. The gospel changes our gaze and turns us outward. So, we're saved to serve others with a love that comes from God out of thankful hearts as a response to his grace. Now, that's not super easy to appropriate all the time. It's not simple. It's not like you can just go into your house this afternoon, read Romans 5, and be like, sweet, I'm good. Now I'll serve out of pure motivations. It's a fight, and it's a struggle, but what we have to do is always go back to the work of Jesus Christ and preach the gospel to ourselves and learn about him and what he has done and the peace that we have and the justification he provides and the delight that God the Father has in us through his Son. We are saved to serve others. And lastly, another reason that service is vital is we as a church advance our mission by serving others. So let's take a step back here and look at our mission statement. Put it on the screen. Woodhaven Bible Church exists to make followers, disciples of Christ who worship God, connect with one another, and lastly, serve the church and the world. So we tried to be very deliberate in this statement. And this last part here, we wanted to, this statement to include our responsibility toward each other within the church community, and we also wanted it to include our responsibility to be outward focused to those outside of our church body. So if we were to just say in this statement, we, we serve, we connect with one another, and we serve, there could be a tendency for us to think all of our responsibility of service is taken care of within the walls of this church. If we can just help one another and do good to one another here, then that is what the only thing that God has for us. And then our church can become very inward focused. And we take care of one another and we serve here. Now, a healthy disciple does invest in the local church, and we'll talk about that. But a healthy disciple always has his gaze outward into the community, into his neighborhood, into his workplace to serve those outside of the church. So that's why this is phrased the way it is. We want to serve both the church and the world. So let's talk about these in order. First of all, the church. No matter what you do in the church, no matter what your gifting may be, and thankfully God has put all varieties of gifted people within this body, no matter what that looks like for you, 
primarily serving in the church is about investing in people. It's about people growth. Right now, the elders in our elders meetings, we're reading through this book together on ministry and what that looks like in the local church. And here's a quote from that book that I think brings this into perspective. I want you to see how we're being encouraged to think through this. Whatever other signs of life and growth we might look for in our congregations, involvement, activities, newcomers, finances, number of staff, buildings, and so on, the only growth that has any significance in God's plans is the growth of believers. That's it. All those other things are important, and I don't want to downplay those, but we do all of those other things in order to see the growth of believers, to see people growth. We're not here to try to gather a whole bunch of people together. We're not here to try to have a big staff, big budget. We're not here to have the coolest children's ministry anywhere downriver, although that'd be fun. We're not here to have the most beautifully decorated building, although I like beautifully decorated buildings. We are here to see people grow to be more like Jesus Christ. Everything we do, all the service that you and I render within this church, no matter what it is, is focused on that end. People who look like Jesus in thought and in deed. You serve the church by giving of your time and your talent and your personality in order to see that happen. That's the goal. So, let's kind of be a little straightforward here this morning, okay? All right? If God has designed us to serve others, that's where we find satisfaction and fulfillment in life, to look outward. And if he has saved us, to serve others, to do good works. That's the goal of our salvation. One of the goals is to have us turn our gaze outward to serve others. And if our service is to be rendered in the church and in our community, which we'll talk about in a minute, then some of us here need to figure out ways to invest in other people within this church body. Active Healthy disciples do not just come and sit and listen to a sermon once a week. Active, healthy disciples invest in seeing other disciples made more like Jesus Christ. And there are a number of ways to do that. This is not a guilt trip. It's not legalistic to say that. This, we talked about earlier, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and then says, this is a blessing. This is how you live the good life. You will be blessed if you do this. This is me encouraging you to live the good life. Encouraging myself to live the good life. And if you need help knowing what that looks like, come talk to me. Talk to one of the other elders. Let's make this a priority. But beyond the church, our statement says, we serve the church and we serve the world. We look outward toward the world. You you can't ignore the world around you. And so if you think about our mission statement, this is where it comes full circle, right? The whole thing is one big feedback loop, at least hopefully. We want to make followers of Christ who worship. They're here singing, praising God, growing in their knowledge of God. They're connecting with other believers, building relationships with one another, speaking the truth in love, and they're serving the church and then the world. And so as believers in this congregation serve the world, 
new followers of Christ will be made through the gospel being proclaimed, and those new followers of Christ will start back in this process. They will begin to worship God. They will connect with others in our church body, and they will serve the church and the world. And so the whole thing is a feedback loop, and people are in different phases and different parts of this journey, but as a congregation, we cannot ignore the last piece of this. We cannot ignore serving the world. Now, what does that look like? Just a couple of things. First of all, we serve the world by primarily taking the gospel to the world. Matthew 28 is very clear. We take the gospel to the world. That's our aim. That's our goal. We cannot truly serve those outside the church if we fail to speak of this good news that we have. But beyond that, I think we're responsible to engage our neighbors and our community by living out our faith and doing good works. We're to seek justice. We're to show love. Ephesians 2 and verse 10, at the very end of this description of salvation, individual salvation, he says we were made, we were saved for good works. What are those good works? Well, it's certainly serving in children's ministry. That is a very good work for you to invest in, but it's doing good works. It's living out your faith outside of the walls of this church. It's being kind. It's being generous. It's being good. Serving the world includes preaching the gospel, but it's not that you have to recite the Romans Road every time you interact with an unbeliever. It's just being a good neighbor and building a relationship so that you can share the gospel with them and so that you can just reflect your faith out into the world. The Downriver community ought to know that there are groups of people, one of which is here at Woodhaven Bible Church, who are different, who have been impacted by the gospel and who are passionate about doing good and serving others. And when they talk to us, we are interested in them. We are asking them good questions. We want to know about them, and we delight in doing good. That ought to be our reputation, the reality of our body out in the world. So our overall mission of seeing more people become followers of Christ and then of seeing those followers of Christ grow in maturity will not be accomplished if we're not engaging in what I've talked about this morning, if we aren't living for others, looking outward in service to others. And I think there's a really good way for me to end this this morning, and I want to read you a little story, and we'll end with this. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. 
Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have made us to live for others, that we are not to be self-consumed. And we pray even this morning as we still live in these broken bodies in this broken world, we pray that you would give us the grace to turn our gaze outward to others. We pray that you would free us from self-condemnation and self-justification and that we would do exactly what the Samaritan did in all arenas of life, that we would look to do good to those around us, both in the church and outside of the church. We thank you for Jesus Christ, both for his example of service to others and for his death on the cross that made our service of others possible. We could not live for others without the work of Jesus Christ, without the gospel, without the good news of forgiveness of sins. And so we pray that you would work these truths into our hearts deeply and they would change the way we see the world and the way we live. Thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray.